Hey guys, and welcome to Hunting Land, presented by Great Days Outdoors Magazine. If you'd like to stay up to date on hunting tactics, land management, land values, and land market dynamics, this is the podcast for you. This week's show is brought to you by Dixie Supply and Baker Metalworks. Dixie Supply and Baker Metalworks are proud to be your metal roofing headquarters for over 40 years. Save time and money by buying from the most reliable manufacturer on the Gulf Coast. If you buy it today, you pick it up today. They offer 20 Sherwin-Williams colors to choose from, and a 40-year warranty. Baker Metal and Dixie Supply, two names, same great service. With the addition of their new store in Cantonment, Florida, they now have eight locations to serve you. Dixie Supply and Baker Metal Works, your metal roofing headquarters. And also brought to you by Southern Seed and Feed. Do you want to provide better nutrients to your deer? If so, try Southern Buck Food Plot Blends. Your deer will love it. At Southern Seed and Feed, they specialize in making textured feed for horses, cattle, sheep, goats, hogs, chickens, small animals, and wildlife. Their products are proven irresistible, scientifically formulated to promote excellent herd health and hunter satisfaction. They supply products to various distributors throughout the South. So visit their website at southernseedfeed.com or call 662-726-2638 to find the dealer nearest you. I'm your host, Joe Bayer, here today talking with my co-host, Butch Theory. And, you know, Butch, about this time of year, every year, is when I, it's just something flips inside of me and I just start thinking about deer. I just start thinking about hunting more and more and more. And it's get, it, you'd think it'd get better, but it actually just seems to get worse and kind of turned into like this almost 365 day a year obsession. For sure. It's always something to do, man. I mean, there's always something to plan. There's always something to figure out, always yep. something to, uh, always something to plan on next. I mean, you always have something to look forward to and be planning. And if you think there isn't, just you're, go to your going just go to your place. Just go <laughs> to your right. place. You'll you, it'll it'll all dredge up all the things you need to do, and then you'll yep. you'll you'll come to the hunt season. And you'll realize, man, there, I should have been working all summer long. I, I was talking about that with my wife this past week, and like, you know, I really need to get up to our place. I hadn't been up there in a few weeks. She's like, why? You know, why do you need to get up there? I'm like, I, I always can't exactly just tell be you why. I just know yeah. I need to get there. I need to get there. I know the, gra- I know the grass things is that long need to for be sure. Done, guaranteed. Yeah. Oh yeah, um, always, man. So one of the biggest things I think about literally year round is, is, uh, what I'm going to do with my food plots in the fall and in the spring. Uh, and, and today we're going to get primed up for that. We're going to be talking with one of the foremost experts on the subject. That is Dr. James Kroll, affectionately known as Dr. Deer. He's the professor emeritus of forest wildlife management at Stephen F. Austin State University. And he is also the director for the Institute of Whitetail Deer Management and Research. Dr. Kroll, welcome to Huntland. First off, tell everybody a little bit about your background and just how you came to be known as Dr. Deer. <laughs> yeah, that was an interesting, or, or is an interesting story. Well, when I was seven years old, they asked me what I wanted to be, and I said a wildlife biologist, and I've never uh, deviated from that. I'm the most blessed man in the world. I've spent the last 50-something years as a wildlife biologist and specifically working with deer. And uh, when we first started working with deer, the, the interesting thing was, uh, hard, might be hard to believe for some of your listeners, but, but we knew very little about deer. And it was just a wide open area and, and it was exciting. Uh, most of us that were working with deer were in our 20s. We had just gotten our doctorates and uh, uh, all across the South uh, were just all sorts of exciting projects going on. We were learning so much about deer and 
and uh, had these great colleagues that grown to appreciate, respect, love the best guys there are. We we put together early on the Southeast Deer Study Group, uh, which was uh, an annual meeting of these young deer biologists, and we would uh, there was no holds barred. We'd argue concepts, we'd present uh, what we were learning, and uh, it was just it was just awesome. And it was at one of those meetings that David Morris, who was one of the partners of North American Whitetail, uh, founding partners, uh, he came to the meeting. Unbeknownst to me, I didn't know who he was anyway. Uh, the meeting's usually held in, in February. And I got back home, and I was sitting home one evening, and the phone rang, and my wife said, there's a guy named David Morris wants to talk to you. And uh, I said, well, Okay. So I got on the phone with him and he said he had been at the meeting and was impressed with my work because I was doing some of the very early landmark work with uh, radio telemetry and behavior of white-tailed deer, especially mature bucks, which was not an easy task. And uh, said that they were putting together a new magazine called North American Whitetail and did I want to be part of it. That uh, he felt like I had a place there. And I said, well, I'm a scientist. I do a lot of scientific writing. I'm not haven't done much popular writing. And he said, well, our philosophy is that we'd rather take good hunters and good scientists and teach them how to write than uh, typical outdoor writers and teach them how to hunt. So that began my association with North American Whitetail. Prior to that, I had a guy call me up one day. His name was Ray Sasser, who uh, became a very, very well-known outdoor writer and uh, wrote for all the magazines. Wonderful man. And he was just starting out. And he, the same way, he heard about my work and uh, asked if he could come and sit down and talk to me because he wanted, he, he had a strange idea for an outdoor rider. He wanted to actually know something about deer to write about. So so I told him, yeah, and he came and spent two or three days with me and we uh, took him to the field working with me and we, we talked about everything imaginable. And he didn't look the part at all. He was just uh, sort of a slightly built guy with these great big thick glasses, and but very nice and Anyway, he left and I forgot all about him. And about a year later, a friend of mine, a colleague called me and said, uh, have you seen uh, a Sports Appeal magazine? And I said, no, don't read it. And he goes, well, you need to read it. There's something about you in there. And so <laughs> I went around and there was an article in there called Dr. Deer. And he had written an article about me. And after that, I'd run into people and they'd go, oh, yeah, you're Dr. Deer. And I go, no. No, you don't understand. I'm not Dr. Deer. <laughs> I was really irritated at it. I called up Ray one day. I said, I'm going to kill you, Ray. He said, what for? Dr. Deer stuff. He says, you're an idiot. It's the best thing that ever happened to you. So I gave up fighting it. And uh, to this day, uh, I guess I've lost my name. But now it's Dr. Deer. Uh, there are some people who go, how, how dare he call himself Dr. Deer? Well, I never called myself Dr. Deer. It just, it just got stuck on me that way. But it, it's been an incredible career. Uh, it's not over. I'm emeritus professor, which means, should mean I'm retired, but I'm working as hard as I've ever worked. Our, uh, my affiliation with North American Whitetail Magazine uh, evolved. To, we always had a dream that we would have a TV version of it. And uh, unfortunately, there was no place to show it uh, at that time. And then along came, uh, thank God for gold fever the folks that produced gold yeah. fever, the folks that created the outdoor channel. And so they, they came up with a place for us to show 
our TV show, and we've been on. This is our twentieth year. When I first, uh, when we first started, I thought if we lasted two years, that it would be a miracle. But we're now tied with Gunsmoke uh, as far as longevity on TV, and wow. it's just been a joy. The, there are no egos in North American Whitetail. We all realize that North American Whitetail is bigger than all of us. And it, there will be a North American Whitetail long after we're gone. So it's just God, it's God's blessing. I didn't do anything to deserve all this stuff. But, man, I love working with Whitetails and I'm still doing it. Well, that's a really cool background. And I can, I can tell that you're a humble man, you know, because you probably at that point felt like there was somebody that – deserved to be Dr. Deer more than you did, but it stuck with you and, and you got it. And like you said, I mean, the deer is what it's all about. And, you know, the purpose of today's show is to really get us ready for the fall. I don't, I don't know about you. I know I look forward. It seems like I can't about believe it's already, it's already time to start thinking about it. I mean, you and I were talking this weekend. I mean, what, you know, we'll be talking about planting food. Plots. I mean, we are talking about planting yeah. food plots now, but we'll be actually going up and starting to get uh prepped to do them very, Getting very prepped. soon. I can't yeah. believe it's already here. But every year about July, it's something in my brain and just yeah, flips. A and goes, switch. Yeah. I think I just get tired of being hot, you know, and like <laughs> start thinking about not being hot and Praying that makes me think about hunting season. And, uh, yep. for me, a big part of my hunting season is food plots. Uh, not only, not only hunting over them, but I enjoy the preparing them. I, I enjoy, you know, watching game in them and I enjoy watching you know, what happens with them year round, not just during hunting season, but to get to that point, you got to think ahead. And, uh, one of the things that's interesting about talking to you, uh, Mr. Kroll is that, you know, I won't say how old you are. I'll just say you've got decades of experience and you've probably seen the right way and the wrong way to do it at this point. You've probably seen a lot of trends come and go. So in that line of thinking, the first thing in my mind, if you're going to plan a food plot is you got to select a site. If you've already got a food plot in place, then that's good. You know, you, you've, you've got to go to preparing that and maybe you need to think about making it bigger uh, or maybe abandoning it altogether, depending on what's there. But when it comes to food plot site selection, if you're starting from scratch, what are some of the things that you consider when you're choosing a site? Well, site selection is everything. And most, most of the time, folks really don't have a choice. Uh, if they if they own the land, they probably do. But a lot of folks, especially uh, we're all in the South here, where there's uh, leasing and hunting clubs are a big tradition, and usually those lands come from timber companies or you know something like that, and they have they have regulations where you can and can't plant. So often they give you the sorriest places to plant. But if you have the luxury of choosing where you plant your food plots, first of all, it's Topography is very, very important. Uh, topography and soil types are probably the most important keys other than what I'll talk about in just a little bit. But you, you don't ever want to plant a food plot on top of a ridge or on top of a hill. It just, I mean, that should, sound, that should be intuitive, but you'd be surprised how many people will be a, pick a rocky, dry hilltop to plant a food plot. Uh, you want a place where where you're going to have a, have adequate moisture through the growing season, depending on whether you're growing in warm season or cool season plants. On the other side of that coin, you don't want to be down in the bottom either, because it's kind of hard for those to grow when they're under two feet of water. Hmm. So you've got to got to choose that side. Soils are, are very, very important. There's a, a thing 
called the description of the perfect soil, but I've never run into the perfect soil. Mm. But you know, if you had the perfect soil, you'd want one that had equal parts sand, silt, and clay. But usually you've got a, either a whole bunch of sand, which means it's going to be very droughty and also very nutrient impoverished, or clay, which is very jealous of its water and won't let go of it uh, in dry time. So it's also clay soils are also a droughty droughty set of conditions. So you got to give some thought to the soil. There's an old saying, a friend of mine is a well-known, internationally known horticulturist, and he says, you know, a garden uh, takes three generations to generate, to build. And it's, you got to, we have taken, for example, here at the Institute, when we first acquired it, it was uh, cut over eroded red acid clay, typical Southern soil. Mm-hmm. And today it's brown, rich, beautiful soil. And it took us about 20 years to get there because we built that soil. So you've got you to try to pick out your best spots, but you also got to have a plan of how you're going to build the, the nutrition and, uh, and physical characteristics that are, are in those soils. The other thing, that, uh, come back to about site selection, is you want to put food plots uh, in strategic places. I, we talked and, and have written a lot about landscaping for whitetails, and one of the things I learned in those years of radio tracking mature bucks and other deer uh, is that the way in the Southeast, the whitetail deer would like to live on 80 acres. They don't do that because they, uh, they can't find all the things they need in their life on 80 acres because of the way the land is being managed. But 80 acres is the, is the management unit size. And, and we've been, we, we are the oldest, food plot research facility in the world. If it's out there, we've done research on it. And one of the things we came up with was 3%, 2 to 3% of your, of your land is, should be dedicated to food plots in most cases. You can get a little tedious and get more than that, but about 2 to 3% of your land should be well distributed. So on, on each 80 acres, there needs to be about 3% planted in food plots. Now I know full well, that everybody listening to this has 80 acres or more and all land is square where the reality is that there are people out there with 17 acres, you know, 25 acres or whatever. But we like to treat that 80 acre landscape where, and put your, your property, whatever size it is in that, and then analyze where is the best place to put food plots as part of that landscape. So it's all about landscaping. It's very interesting to hear you go into detail on that. Butch and I have had conversation after conversation. Dr. Kroll, I, I bought my first piece of property about two and a half years ago, and, and it was much like what you're describing. It was a formerly institutional timberland, very little food plots. I think there was you know one acre of food plots on the place uh, when I bought it. And I'm looking at the areas that are, could possibly be converted, but I'm also just looking at you know, pine timber that I'm going to have to harvest and de-stump. And when you start looking into what it costs to convert timberland into a food plot, you better get your location right because it's not cheap. It's fun, but it ain't cheap. And making sure that you get that right is very important. I learned what you're saying for you, topography is number one, soil types number two, and then you want to make sure you've got enough uh, there 
But what I want to key in on is what you were saying about the 80 acres and how a deer really wants to be there. They would be content to stay in that 80 acres if they have everything they need. When mm-hmm. I think about that, it makes me think about ingress and egress, where one of the things they need, I'm sure, is safety, you know, to feel safe. And if I'm walking through or driving a UTV through the middle of where they want to be, uh, they're probably not going to tolerate that for too long, I would imagine. So does the location of the food plot in regards to proximity to roads, camps, common access, trails, does that play into where you put a food plot? Oh, it definitely does. One of the things that we we learned uh, about deer behavior very early on was that that deer travel around on what we call travel corridors. And the travel corridors usually are along drainages, uh, usually mid-slope in the drainages. But but drainages are what really drives everything in whitetail deer. Uh, people will say, well, my land doesn't have a drainage zone. Yes, it does. I guarantee it does. And and we, we have doe groups that are associated with drainages. And then bucks travel up and down drainages and go from drainage to drainage through what we call saddles. And the, the doe's job is to produce spawns and raise them, hopefully. Buck's job is, is to keep genetic diversity high. So the bucks, when I say 80 acres, that's during the normal time of the year, during, during their spring and summer. When they hit the breeding season, they're going to they're gonna travel about and, and do you know, what God set them up to, to be, and that's spreading the genetics. I'm going off on a sidetrack here, but early on, we we discovered, I wrote about it a lot, and it's real, you know, one of the things about my career, it's very, very gratifying to find scientists who later on, years later, two, three decades later, in, in, in this case, that published stuff corroborates what, what I was talking about 40 years ago, and that especially was recently, they, there was some work done in Mississippi State where they, they found Surprise, surprise, that there are two kinds of bucks out there. There are dominant residents and dominant floaters. And the dominant residents are homebodies, and they they tend to stay in one place, and the floaters go from, travel for miles and miles and miles. So those drainages are the travel corridors. Then you got to align the the landscape elements along the, off of those drainages to supply them in the right the right spaces and pl- and places. Uh, and there's you got to have cover, and there's four types of cover. There's summer thermal cover, there's winter thermal cover, there's bedding cover, and there's escape cover. And you've got they, those three, four things are very, very different. So you have to lay them out, and you have to put your food plots adjacent to cl- uh, to cover and along drainages or along uh, those travel corridors. So you're making you're putting every, all the right elements. So you have one-stop shopping for your deer. All great points. And uh, like Joe said, we talk about food plots a lot. All those things make make great sense. We're always trying to figure out. It seems like everybody you ask has different opinions. Uh, you know, we're always to the mindset of, you know, smaller is better. You know, people, some people think long and skinny if we're talking in regard to, you know, the size of your actual food plot. I know some people like the, like the L shape to kind of give them a little bit of variety. Um, since we're picking the perfect site selection and the perfect food plot, do you have any uh, have any opinions on the size, Doctor Crawl? Well, you, you, uh, we never we have uh, there's I manage deer from virtually South America to Canada, and there's there's variations and you know so things you, you there's practicality, and then there's reality. Sure, <laughs> always. We we don't like to have food plots that are much over three acres in size. 
it depends on what the utility you plan for the food plot is. Uh, for example, uh, one of the ones that we found to become very, very important is adjacent to, say, a half acre, one acre food plot. We put what are called satellite plots, and they're just like, I mean, they can be an eighth acre. They don't have to be very big at all. And we found that that the bucks really, really like those kinds of plots. So it depends on what, what utility you're you're trying to uh, to supply. And, and I might throw something in here. You, you guys sound like you're really uh, dedicated and excited about food plots. It's it's amazing what's going on out there. When I started, uh, people wanted to talk to me about about a week out of the year, and now it's 365 days, and this has become <laughs> right. a and it is astonishing. The the social media just drives me insane. There are all sorts of people out there with with you know very firm opinions about things, and I'm certainly willing to listen to any of them. But there's nobody in the world that has done this as much as I have, and as many places I have. So I, I would like to to keep people from making the big mistakes that I see people making over and over again. I would love to know what those mistakes are as somebody who uh, is is had to do this just off of no real scientific background, just kind of going off my gut instincts of what, what I've learned as being a hunter and, you know, looking at my own property and talking to Butch and both staring at a map and saying, all well, right, we're man, always trying to, trying to look around corners, right? Yeah, You're always trying right. to see what you, but you don't know what you don't know. Literally, yeah. it's impossible. If, we, if we put this food plot here, are we going to be able to get in and get out, you know, without being detected, you know, is one of the, probably, that's probably my biggest thing. A lot of times is, is how am I going to get in and get out and, and, and not mess things up? And, you know, you start getting into the, the weeds, so to speak, about shapes and sizes and, and all that. And you mentioned that satellite plot. That's another thing that's come up for me is, you know, I'm dealing with a, a property that's basically 200 acres, which is, you know, a, enough property. But at the same time, I'm wondering, are my food plots too close together? I mean, is that a thing? You mentioned that 80 acre rule. Is it, do you put much thought into how far apart your, your bigger food plots are? Well, yeah, you, you can do that. One one thing that that I, I've learned is you've got you've got two situations. There are a lot of people out there that are afraid of their deer, <laughs> and what I mean by that is they pussyfoot around the place and scared to death to go on it and, and whatnot. And often they're the kind of people that they really don't have that much time they spend on on where they're managing and where they're hunting. Mm-hmm. Uh, we like to when it when when we have the ability to do it. We like to have as much activity on a piece of property as, as possible. Mm-hmm. For example, all around me where I'm sitting in the middle of a research institute, and, uh, you know, I can go out there and, and walk around or drive around, and, uh, you know, there'll be, you know, a buck, and I'll look up, and he'll go, hey, how you doing? Yeah. And, you know, it's just, it, it just depends on how much time you're going to spend on your land. But if you're one of those folks that can't, spend, and most people can't, yeah, uh, how you access and what you use food plots for. You know, food plots have two basic functions. The most important one is improve nutrition at a time of shortage. And then the other one is is to facilitate killing deer. And that those two different, completely different set of strategies, you know, one where you want to kill deer, that's one of the things we, uh, we learned very early on working with Buck Forge Oats is they're highly, highly attractive. And so they make a they make a great kill plot. We call it. They will. Uh, you give deer a choice; they'll go to go to those oats every every time. 
But if you want a nutritional plot, then you're going to be planting, say, legumes. And because you've got, and a lot of times we mix cereal grains and legumes because cereal grains are high in phosphorus and legumes are high in calcium. And, uh, you know, so you have a a balanced calcium-phosphorus ratio. So there's a lot of considerations to go on there. But, you know, it's back to the shape thing is I let the land decide that. Is, uh, you know, you can, you've got it, let's say you have a, a 15 degree slope. And then it breaks off to almost flat for about 75 feet. Do you plant that 75 feet and up that 15-degree slope? Well, no. You follow the, the topography, let the topography lay it out. And a lot of times, let the soils uh, lay it out for you. And you, a lot of times, my food plots uh, that we design for folks are, are shaped like the soil map looks like. That's, that's really the best criterion that I use. And then, of course, like I said, if, if I've got a, a bedding area here, then I want to lay out, find a place where I can lay out a food plot fairly close to it. Now, we do, don't really encourage people to just sit right on top of food plots and, and, and hunt food plots, even if you set it up as a kill plot. Because one of, the, one of the other things we learned in our telemetry work and some of the concepts we, we discovered was the concept of the staging area. The staging area is probably the most important thing in trophy whitetail hunting. If you learn to recognize what staging areas look like and what the functions they serve and how to how to go about utilizing them, your ability to kill mature deer is going to go way up. A staging area is an area with an open understory that is down prevailing wind from where does are going to go and feed. And the buck and their signposts, that was another thing we discovered was that there's a gland on top of deer's head called the forehead gland, oddly enough, and they deposit scent on signposts. And those does actually, we've got video of it, the does actually go to the signposts, smell them, and mark themselves up with the scent that the bucks are leaving leaving on them. So, and the thing we learned is that the bucks, the average buck gets up about three o'clock in the afternoon. How he decides where he's gonna go, we still don't know, but he decides which staging area he's gonna go to. He meanders his way there, and he arrives there just at dark. Now, if you're sitting on, if that area where the those are going is a food plot, you're never going to see that guy. Right. Unless he, you've got one of the guys that win the lottery, and a buck is on a doe, and he, she runs out there, and he chases her out there and makes a mistake. What you do is you find, you, you map out all the rub lines on your property, which lay up identically the travel corridors, and you figure out where along that line you can ambush that deer. So, for example, I killed a huge deer in Alberta many years ago, and I was three miles from where that buck was going. But I knew he was going there, and I had I found the place to set up to intercept him going there. And it was a it was an alfalfa field. So I was really hunting that alfalfa field, but I was three miles away from it. Hmm. That's super interesting. Makes you think uh, real hard about putting a food plot too close to one of your property lines because you may be turning sure. your neighbor's property into your staging area. Yeah, you never, not all, you never want to do that. As a matter of fact, most small properties, what you want to do is you want to set up a sanctuary area in the middle of it and then make that predominantly a, a really great uh, bedding area and then put your nutritional developments whether it be timber cutting or, or food plots uh, around that sanctuary area and then hunt the perimeter of your property. Mm. 
I'm liking what you're saying, Dr. Crow. I mean, the good news is, is most of these things, whether out of luck or out of just kind of instinct, I, I I think I've incorporated at least into my plan. Butch, would you agree? I mean, most of these yeah. things are things that we, you know, as we've laid out food plots on my place, we've said, you know, we could put one here, but the actually the soil classification is better over in this area. Why don't we just put it where the good soils are? We won't have to worry about it getting, being droughty or being, being wet. Yeah. Um, yeah. Seems like our overthinking yeah. has paid off a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds, sounds like we're going in the right direction. So what about mistakes though? You mentioned those. What are some of the biggest mistakes you see people making when it comes to site selection? Well, uh, I'll have to go be, beyond site selection, but the, the biggest, the biggest one is that they pick a, pick a rotten site, you know, that, it's not going to do well. I mean, they just—it's just not going to do well. The biggest mistake uh, folks make: uh, one is that is they really don't know how to plant whatever varieties that they're that they're working with. Mm-hmm. That I, this week, I had somebody call and said he planted alfalfa and he planted it an inch and a half deep, and I, and and nothing came up. What would it come up later or something? And I'm going. You don't plant alfalfa an inch and a half deep. Mm-hmm. You know, if you do that, you know, one of these years, if it has some hard seed and it, it's going to come up. So planting depth, <clears throat> one of the biggest mistakes, time of planting is, is really a big mistake. And especially in the Southeast, uh, we like been working with the Buck Forge guys. You, you plant cereal grains uh, in the fall, uh, most of the South in late September, early October. If you plant before that, you're, here's what's going to happen. And they and people do it every time because uh, there's a lot of dove hunting that goes on, and they have have a club or something, or guys or partners or whatever. But they always want to show up for a planting day, and they want to coincide with dove season. And I, you know, it opens in different times across the south, but they always plant too early, and they'll get that early that early September rain. And the, the their crop will germinate, and then it'll go dry, and then it'll it'll uh, wither wither and die. Or, and I have people argue with me all the time, and I just don't argue with them uh, about about that. That that they'll say I had you know that, you know this year we planted uh, the first week of September, and we've got we've got our oats up to uh, ten inches high right now. You don't know what you're talking about. That same person will call me in about a week and ask, "What? How do we get rid of these these army worms that just yeah. ate up all of our food?" So you plant cereal. Cereal grains come up fast. Uh, you still got plenty of time planting in the last of September. So planting date is very very important. Same way on the other end of the spectrum when we come out in the spring and we're looking at warm season crops, is uh, is planting too early when the soil moisture, uh, soil temperature is not not high enough, especially with Something like uh, cowpeas, which is a great, great crop, but you got—they have to have 65 degree soil temperatures. So they—they they paying attention to planting at the right time, planting at the right depth, and then of course the the soil amendments. There's all kinds of horror stories. I, I worked with this one guy. Every year he put he put 400 pounds of triple 13 fertilizer on his food plots, and I kept trying to get him to do a soil test. And that you know, getting somebody to so- test their soil is like pulling hen's teeth. <laughs> and he, and finally, finally after years, he, he, I just said, I'm going to do a soil test. I'll pay for it. Let me, let me do it. He had a near toxic level of phosphorus. Mm. 
That year, he only needed 50 pounds of nitrogen is all he needed on his plots. He was heading towards a really serious problem because, you know, it's just one size fits all management. So those are the really bad mistakes people make. That's it's funny you say that because you think about how much four hundred pounds in today's dollars, you know, how much oh four hundred pounds of a triple thirteen costs. You better and, be measuring out that stuff. Well, and like Bush, you know, I mean, we we tested the uh soils on my place and and Dr. Kroll, like, you know, what I found was I had more than enough P and K. The only thing I needed was a little bit of nitrogen and I didn't need much. So, yeah. you know, going to the seed and feed this spring and last fall was pretty easy uh on on my pocketbook and if i had done not done that soil test and just done what everybody told me you need to do um well you have to know what you well. you have to know what you have before you can even start right but but most right. I, I would imagine most people uh like you described earlier they're managing their properties from afar it's something that is almost an afterthought or it's like all right we got to get this done and we're trying to get a bunch of people together to, to work and we're just we're just picking a weekend to knock it out. And it doesn't really take into account that this just may not be a good weekend due to soil moisture and everything else that's going on. And they probably approach their, their soil tests and seed selections and things in the same way. It's like whatever they've got at the seed store, uh, cause right. I'm just, just, get I'm it just done. out of time, just got to get it done. Yeah. That was, that's the next thing I wanted to talk about was crop selection. You cannot name a plant that we have not tested and tested geographically. Everybody is in search of the magic bean, you know, and there are people out there that have this incredible loyalty to something that because it worked and their one, one situation is, is universal. Uh, one of the early clovers, for example, the, the guy that pushed it like crazy, uh, that it was one of the white clovers and it did be, it did very well on blackland soil. And he had people in planting in South Texas and South Florida uh, that is ubiquitous. You could just plant it anywhere. Mm-hmm. And when we first when we first decided that here's what we did when we first put together the Institute for Life and Do Management Research is we put together what today would be called focus groups. And we brought in landowners, hunters, foresters, wildlife biologists, everybody, set them down and said, We're setting up a 20 year plan for research. What do you need to know? And one of the first things they said was, can you plant something for deer? And I said, well, I don't know. We'll look at it. Because uh, my our only experience, what all people were doing those days, were planting what, what they called oat patches, which was <laughs> they put uh, 100 pounds of feed oats and, and 50 pounds of fertilizer down and thought they were planting a food plot. But but that's those feed oats they were planting were, were actually – uh, warm season oats, not cool season oats. But anyway, so I said, okay, who knows more about forages for, for ruminants than anybody on the face of the earth? And the answer was dairymen. If dairymen don't know about it, it isn't there. So we went and asked the dairymen, what do you plant? They said, we plant a mixture of cereal grains and legumes, and the legumes are, are clovers. And our first research focused in on that. And let me tell you something, that was 40-something years ago, and the answer is still cereal grains and legumes for cool season plantings. Uh, there are some plants that came along. Uh, I, I think you'd like to talk about chicory. The chicory's come along, and that's kind of a cool and warm season plant. Uh, but there there are no real magic beans. Like Early on, I, I got very critical about the brassicas. And when I started criticizing brassicas, 
the social media just blew up. I did not know my parents weren't married, that, <laughs> that I was evil sell out and all this kind of stuff. And I, I told, you know, I told, I kept saying, we, we've done this research and not only that in Europe, they regulate how many, how much, how many acres you can plant a brassicas because they're toxic and they, they kill roe deer and red deer and, and, um, and hares. The, the problem with those brassicas was that they're high sulfur compound plants. And most people think food plots are just any food plot variety is, is just as attractive as another. Now, browse plants are listed, rated as first, second, third choice. Well, there's first, second, third choice food plot plants too. And the, the brassicas have, when they get cold, the media was, was hilarious that they would turn those alkaloids that we were talking about that were toxic into sugars. I have a degree in chemistry with all my other ones. I'm here to tell you there ain't no process where alkaloids are turned to sugars. And, and they actually are third choice and they give deer hemolytic anemia and, and diarrhea if they eat, eat too much of them. Well, this went on for a long time. I was, boy, I was called every name in the world. Well, guess what? Now all the science is in. Again, Mississippi State, it's a really good place doing deer research. They did a preference study, and guess what? The brassicas were the last choice preference. Well, second, second to ryegrass. But, and also, and the reason they work is guess what? Because they they're, are high sulfur compounds. Now, they, they never called them brassicas. They called them high sulfur plants, but they're brassicas. And they, all of that is coming out now. And so the, the, the search for the magic bean is still going on out there. And people are buying, buying up stuff. Let's take Lab Lab as an example. Lab Lab is a legume. It's sort of like a pea. To grow Lab Lab, it came from Australia. To grow Lab Lab, you, it really grows very well in Australia, South Texas, and South Florida. You plant it somewhere else, you're not going to do very well. And also, you have to be one of the greatest farmers on the face of the earth to, to grow it. And it, it costs more to plant. So this, this magic bean thing has is, is really been somewhat entertaining to watch people out there. When it's all said and done, a, a very, there, there's only the following plants that actually work. Cereal grains and the ratings on cereal grains are oats first, wheat second, rye third, triticale fourth, and ryegrass fifth and deer preference. The other one is uh, red and white white clovers. And which one you choose depends on, the, uh, as you've been talking about, site and soil types. And that's pretty much it. Now, uh, we can come into the warm season plants and up north, some of the, the indeterminate soybeans work pretty well. When you get from southern Illinois south, Cow peas are probably the best, but only if you can fence them because they are so attractive. You'll never grow a crop in the South unless you do fence them. Uh, and then the chicory, uh, we we have probably have in the United States the longest chicory research program. And we've looked at all 123 varieties of chicory in the world, and we have it really down to three. But chicory is a, is a very interesting plant that, can be very, very useful as both a cool season and warm season plant in the south and a warm season plant in the north. All right, folks, we'll be right back. Y'all take a minute and check out some of the businesses that make this show free for you every episode. 
This segment was brought to you by Mallard Bay Outdoors. Mallardbay.com is the Airbnb-style marketplace for discovering and booking your next guided hunting and fishing adventures. The Mallard Bay platform was built by sportsmen for sportsmen. Their mission is to help expand access to affordable and successful hunting by connecting you with verified outfitters across the United States. You can browse trips and prices by state or species, select the dates you'd like to go, message outfitters, and secure your dates all from one platform, mallardbay.com. Not sure where you want to go yet? Reach out on Instagram or Facebook, and they can help you find your dream hunt. And also by Bucks Island Marine. At bucksisland.com, you can check out the full list of inventory from new and used bass, pontoon, and bow rider style boats, new and used motors, as well as kayaks. They love trade-ins, which provides a steady stream of used boats, and they can rig your boat at their 18-bay service department or ship your new motor anywhere in the United States. They provide boat service on all kinds of boats, even if they weren't purchased from Bucks. They have factory-trained and certified technicians, so visit them at 4500 Highway 77 in Southside, Alabama, or give them a call at 256-442-2588. Dr. Kroll, when it comes to chicory, you mentioned that you know, you kind of put those, those grasses as a first choice. Chicory is a broadleaf. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah. It's a related to dandelion. Is it, is it, uh, is it a first choice plant, um, for deer? In most places, yes. During certain parts of the year, I plant it. I I really like it as a companion plant. Uh, one of the reasons is that, you know, the the history of chicory is fascinating. During the uh, war of aggression against the South, they uh, cut off coffee, and the, the Louisiana folks, the chicory came to the United States from from France, and uh, the folks over in Louisiana found that if they took the roots, they have a big parsnip-like root, sometimes three feet long, and roasted them and then made fake coffee out of them. Now, uh, chicory roots, or chicory is a medicinal plant. It has no caffeine, and it, it has some other helpful chemicals that are pretty cool. In it, but the neat thing about chicory is it's it's a perennial. It's a three to five year plant. Uh, you get it established very very drought hardy. Uh, if you go go through a drought period, you'll lose the top of it and swear that it's all died, and then you get a rain and out it comes. So it's a it's a very good plant for a warm season uh, forage to add to your to your uh, fleet of things that you can plant. You mentioned you like to plant it uh, as a companion plant. Does it does it do well with those cereal grains like oats uh, in the fall? No, the the oats it depends on your seeding rate. Uh, if you plant uh, the recommended seeding rate of oats, it'll pretty well choke it out. It, mm-hmm. It's really good companion clovers. It makes a be- it makes a better uh, companion plant with clover. And one of the things I always hear about with clovers is you know they as we get to the hottest part of the summer, they're not providing much. Does chicory do well in those in those really hot dog days like we're in right now, or is it going to kind of get beat back during those times as well? It's going to it's going to go senescent too. It depends on what clover you're talking about. The white clovers, when when it gets hot, they roll up their tent and go home. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are mostly perennials, and uh, they can they can come back and often do come back. That's why uh, we also work with red clovers. The red clovers are like Kenland red, or semi-perennial and they they do very well and under hot hotter conditions than do the white clovers one of the first clovers we looked at was arrowleaf clover and that we gave up on it and now we're going back to it because 
it would get three and four feet tall in the summer. The hotter it got, it grew better and better. It got it got too rank, and so we thought, well, and in those days, see, we didn't have high deer population, and so a, a plant like that, an aggressively growing plant, would just take over everything and uh, choke all of our other plants out. So so we moved away from Airlie. Now, and we've got huge populations of deer everywhere. And we're going back to Arrowleaf again and uh, looking at the utility of it. But the red clovers are are more heat tolerant than the white clovers are. It's interesting to hear you say these things because, you know, what works on my place, which is just east of the Black Belt, I'm really in the coastal plain. The people in the area like to call it the Black Belt, but it's, the soils really aren't. Whereas Butch's place is in the heart of the Black Belt. What works well for me may not work well for him. We don't have the no same... Doubt soils even though we're generally in the same latitude but what i'm hearing you say is you know going back to the the oats wheats clover discussion uh and the fact that you know there is no magic bean would would those be your magic beans i mean would you say that those are going to work well just about everywhere the cereal grains and and those clover legumes if there ever was a combination that would work in the majority of places those combinations will work now if you get on a real droughty sandy site you're going to have to go with rye. If you get on a wet bottomland site, you're going to have to go with wheat. The rest of the site, uh, you can plant oats, and oats will be superior, but not on those, not on those sandy, deep sandy soils, and not on the wet soils. So there's a difference in them. Now, growing up, when we would plant food plots, you know, it was exactly as you just described. It was oats, wheats, and clover. And what I always heard as a young man was we're planting those oats and they're going to be good in the early season. The frost is going to kill them back and then we're going to have wheat and clover to kind of carry us through. You know, I can't speak to what was actually growing out there. I'm not, I'm <laughs> by no means an expert on that, but when I would go into those areas uh, after we'd plant them, boy, it sure seemed like right at the outset of germination, the deer would just hammer those food plots. And I, I would assume that that was the, the oats that they were hitting. Mm-hmm. And I mean, they'd be in there eating. It looked like bare dirt and they'd come up and have, you know, dust on the end of their nose a lot of times. Oh yeah. But you know, you think about oats and that cold front, that first cold front, first frost is always a big problem with that. And from what I understand, Buck Forge Oats has selectively bred to accommodate for that. Is that right? Tell us a little bit about your research with buck forage oats and I mean, how they're different. Well, from our early research, I'm dead set against planting oats for the, the reason that you just said is that they just were not, were not cold tolerant. So we, we uh, pretty much went with wheat and rye in those days for cold tolerance. And then one day, this guy named John Butler called me from uh, Stuttgart, Arkansas, and said, I hear you, uh, hear you doing all this research. I said, yeah. He said, I hear you really don't like oats. And I said, well, I like oats, but they freeze out. And he said, well, I accidentally found one that doesn't freeze out. And what I would like to do is I'd like to send you some seed. And if you would do some, do your testing, I won't bother you for a year. And, uh, and we'll talk about it. And I said, well, that sounds fair. So, uh, he sent it and we planted it in our evaluation plots. And that, that winter, uh, lo and behold, it, it got down to like eight degrees and the oats didn't freeze out. And he called me a year later and he said, what do you think? I said, how'd you do that? He said, well, I was waiting for you to say that. He said, I can't take the credit. We just accidentally found this variety 
and we're doing research with LSU on it, and we'd like for you to, to be involved in the research. But sure, we'll do it. And that was, gosh, almost 40 years or 30-something, 40 years ago, however long. And uh, I've worked very closely with Dr. Steve Harrison at LSU for all these years. Each year, we, we look at about 14,000 uh, test plots of crosses that we artificially breed, or Dr. Harrison does the breeding of the oats. And we've ended up with a variety of Louisiana 99-17s that have won every cold tolerance, grain production, uh, grazing field trials in the world. Wow. And right now where we are is to get any better, we, we would have to go with a genetic manipulation, and we don't want to do that. Uh, we've got some, we've got a new one that we're about to release, which is, is really, really good because we wanted to get it. You know, when you're breeding plants, it's like Dr. Harrison says, it's really hard to get all your raccoons up the same tree. <laughs> you know, you're you know, crossbreeding and testing and getting this, but it this does this well, but it doesn't do that well. But anyway, uh, one of the things about the cold, cold tolerant varieties is that they have slower growth in the fall. And we wanted something that put on a lot, a lot more yield in the fall, but still had that cold tolerance and came out in the spring, not dead. And uh, so we've got a brand new one that is about to be patented and released. But that, that was a, in the 40 years we have developed and released, this will be the four, only the fourth variety in all of those years. Wow. And yet there are companies out there that release something to you. They don't, they don't release it in the terms that we use it in, in, in genetics, uh, something new every year. We finally got one of the, one of the most uh, well-known uh, companies out there to admit that their definition of research was scouring the earth with plants you, you didn't, you've never heard of <laughs> get you to buy them. But, but uh, that's been a fascinating story. And here's the way it's ended up. Instead of coming up with new plants, what we did is we took the plants that were already working and made them better. The, the advances, we didn't do it, but the advances in the white clovers, for example, are way beyond what they were. When we started, People uh, white clover was Louisiana S1 clover. And it has a little tiny leaf and it has a lot of tannic acid in it, tannin in it, not tannic acid, tannin in it which limits use and it, it really burned, burned up in the summer. And now we've got these big leaf, you know, Ladino and Regal and those, a lot of those varieties. The one that Buck Forage sells uh, is a really neat variety that's developed in Scandinavia that won all the international trials. But they all have big leaves, which means they have less tannin. You know. So we've improved, and by we, I'm talking about the, the, the scientific community, have improved a lot of these forages, but they're still... Like the dairyman said, cereal grains and legumes in the cool season, legumes in the warm season. It's funny to listen to you describe that. Butch and I have this conversation a good bit about how everything just gets reinvented, you know, and they slap a new sticker on it and it's stuff that's four, been being Four done variations for, in 40 years. That just goes yeah. to show you how long it actually takes to get something right. But also it shows it goes to show you that people pretty much had it figured out back then too. And we just, we make it over complicated. Make it way too complicated. Way too sure. complicated yeah. uh, from time to time. I mean, they're, they, they really do. And it's fascinating to watch all these uh, group. I don't know what you call them, but groups out there on social media 
they, I think they're going to start giving like Academy Awards to each other for the most beautiful <laughs> food plots. I mean, they, and people call me, they got, they got weed paranoia right. and a lot of the weed, the deer foods and they, a food plot doesn't have to be, uh, you know, look like a golf course green. Right. It's not, there's no points in it. White tailed deer does not appreciate beauty. It appreciates good nutrition. And then the other exception is that white-tailed deer have got to have this huge variety. And a lot of the commercial folks use that mentality to their favor in throwing together all these mixes and never buy a mix. The, the mixes, first of all, if you look at the labels on the back, the, the plants that are in it are listed in order of abundance in the bag. Mm-hmm. The first ones, the most abundant ones, are always the cheap stuff. And, and also, it's always underseeded. If you take, say, if it's uh, touted as planting a half acre plot, if you go back and look at how much you should really plant, you're underseeded in most cases. Or you'll be underseeded in the good stuff and overseeded in, in the bad stuff. So, so, and then another thing about mixes is, and I've got, I've criticized publicly so much that they're, these companies are starting to, to make some changes, but you'll, find, you'll buy a bag of seed. And there'll be five different sizes of seed in there. One size will be, should be planted at an inch or inch and a half. The other one needs to be planted at an eighth of an inch. How do you plant that? That sounds tough. Right. And if you follow that, that name, that brand name, and read the, the back label this year, and then read the back label next year, there'll be different plants in it because they're commodity buying. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're just mixing stuff up. You know, they're literally sweeping up the, the processing floor to put together a mix for you. Now, there's some exceptions. I'm not beating everybody about the head over this, but there are some that, that you know, have legume mixes that are pretty much the same size seed and stuff. But still, and then you ask people, why do you do that? Well, deer like variety. No, they don't. I spent almost 50 years of my life working on nutrition and deer, pen raising deer. And when I when we closed down our research facility, we were still feeding deer the same ration that we were feeding them in the 1970s. And we were growing 400 inch deer with that ration. Deer, they want a a balanced diet. Yeah, they want a balanced diet in every bite that they take. They don't, they're not gonna go around and say, oh, there's more variety here, I'm gonna diet over here. It's not a Chinese menu and it's not a buffet line. Dr. Crow, I thought it was pretty insightful what you were saying about how a lot of different seed mixes that are out there have seeds in them that need to be planted at different depths, but they're mixing them all together and saying, you know, go at it. That makes a lot of sense to me. It also <laughs> helps you understand why sometimes you you plant that that plot and and uh, certain plants in that mix seem to be doing better than others. I've always wondered about that. Where's my, you know, I, I knew I had something in a mix and I'm going... I don't see any of that out here. What's going on with that? So thinking about that really kind of brings me to the last part of this. And it, it really goes back to uh, site preparation. And there's a lot out there today about the methods that you use, you know, and you've, you've done a good job of explaining that really the stuff that was working 40 years ago is still working. It, it's been tweaked and optimized, uh, but it's still working. Now, one of the hot topics right now is, is no-till comparing that to conventional tillage and things of that nature. Do you have a favorite preparation method? I have found on my property, uh, no-till has worked adequately. And it, for me, being a, a guy who does have a long distance 
uh, to his hunting property. It actually just makes it a little bit easier for me because I don't have to uh, plan it as uh, plan my planting as accurately as I would if I had to have mul- a multiple step site prep. But do you have a favorite method? No, well, not really. Uh, I like to match the method to the site. You know, no till or uh, what a lot of people call low till is is really good for especially uh, sensitive sites. Uh, those those droughty sand sites. Yeah, I work a lot in, in the in the Midwest, up in Michigan, Wisconsin, that area, where the, they have those glaciated soils. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you something: you go in there and you disc up that soil, you just created beach sand mm-hmm. because there's very little organic matter there. So we use a lot of uh, low-till type planting methods there, so we don't really disturb that organic matter that that very fragile shallow organic matter that that's in the top layers of, of the soil and and we quite frankly we use some chemicals too uh you know i'm not a i'm not a herbicide nut but uh a lot of times we'll burn something down and, and put a thatch down or just mow and put a thatch down and, and low till right through it you low till sometimes in very fertile very moist soils and you're going to have incredible weed competition and all kinds of problems so it just I just match it to the site. There's a lot of interest in low-till right now. But, you know, on, on my Facebook page, I get a lot of comments from folks. That, you know, most, most of our, the demographics of our, of our followers are just average folks, you know, that have got, got a hold of a piece of land, either inherited or bought it or it's their dream or whatever. And they're working on a pretty tight budget. And... You know, you get go out and get a Great Plains drill. You're talking nineteen, twenty thousand mm-hmm. dollars. But some of these now, there's been this revolution of scaled down uh, food plot equipment, um, Golden Valley uh, uh, micro micro food plots. Is one of our sponsors. They've got some machines that you can turn the coulters on the the, the disc gangs. You can turn them straight. And with the seed with seed drops, you can literally produce uh, the effect of low till. You'd swear that a, somebody ran through there with a high dollar Great Plains. So you, there's some little tricks that you can pick up with with some of that equipment. You know, some of that equipment, the I call it reasonably affordable. If you call three to seven thousand dollars reasonably affordable, but a lot of guys are going together, and you know, adjacent clubs and landowners and buying equipment but you just it's there's an art to planting food plots you you've got to look at it and say all right how much do i need to really tear this up uh to get this crop where i want it to be right. and can't be overzealous in it that one size fits all mentality is pervasive but that is one of the <clears> things <throat> i've learned in managing my own property and talking to other landowners is I mean, even on the same property, what's good for one food plot may not be good for the other. I mean, you can have a for sure just within 400 yards, one that's droughty and one that's wet. And, Stays uh, super wet, no doubt. Yeah, I'm glad you said that, and that's very perceptive of you guys. Is one of the things that we recommend is there's no there's no substitute in deer management for record keeping, whether it be herd management or food plot management. And what we what we do is we keep records on every one of our food plots. And those records include the performance, what we planted, what we did, how it performed, how it didn't perform. And then we come up with a, with a custom uh, planning 
for that particular food plot. And, and you guys are very perceptive. There are places uh, on a property where you can't get anything to grow. And, you know, 400 yards away from it, you can get anything to grow. Yeah. And uh, it's there sometimes when you just got to take failure uh, for seriously and say, I got to find another place to plant food plot. Yeah. You know, this, this isn't for us. Maybe, so, I can, yeah. maybe I can grow trees here uh, instead, you yeah. know. Right, but. stop beating your head against the wall. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, grow cover instead. I want to ask you what you, when you were saying you guys keep records, I'm not the most detailed record keeper, but I do try to keep an, a track of, you know, what I planted, what rate, and in my perception of how it did. Perception is not, not always reality, though. I've, I've been playing around with some exclusion cages and things like that, trying to measure mm-hmm. uh, browse pressure. What are some practical things that, that a non-research oriented person can do to, to measure their effectiveness of their food plot? Well, you just hit it. Uh, the, the most effective thing is an exclusion cage. And getting somebody to put an exclusion cage out, again, I mean, you almost have to go hold a gun on them to get them to do it. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and I tell these young guys that are, you know, are in the consulting business and they're managing places for people, the best thing you can do for yourself is put an exclusion cage out there where the owner can see it. Yeah. And because they're not going to perceive, people don't perceive you. If a plot, if a, if a guy looks at two plots and one, the, the crop is like three inches tall and another one, the crop is like two feet tall. He's going to interpret the one that's two feet tall as the best plot. It may or may not be. Right. It may be that, that whatever's planted there that, that you know, like I said, there's choices in food plots. So by having an exclusion cage there, you you really have a visual impression without measuring anything of how effective that food plot is. Yep. And like Joe was saying, we we both live, you know, a fair amount away from our property. So it takes us three, three and a half hours to get to our places. So one thing that we've been kind of implementing in the last couple of years is putting one of our cellular trail cameras on the exclusion yeah. cage where you can kind of keep an eye on it. Yep. Yes. And and keep an eye on the deer that are coming to your plots. That's right. That's those those cell cameras are they're the the best and worst thing they ever have. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I, I check mine about ten times a day, and I love it, but it, it's distracting. <laughs> yes, it is. You know that uh, at the institute, we're the guys that invented the trail camera. I did not we, know that. Uh, yeah, we back in the early seventies, we were doing we were studying uh, deer nutrition, and we found uh, a spot in a cut bank of a creek where where obviously from the track and everything, deer were coming and eating the dirt. And so we analyzed what was in it because we were trying to put together forages, uh, food, I mean, uh, feeds and stuff. And uh, we wanted to uh, monitor the, the use of that. So the Forest Service Wilderness Act had just been passed and the Forest Service was using a thing that was very simple. It just had a box and a beam and a bo- receiving box and they put them on trails in the wilderness areas to count people coming up down the trails. And somebody come down and break the, break the beam, you know, they go one, two, three. So they loaned me one of those, and I put it on that on that natural mineral lake, and we got lots of numbers, but then that, that wasn't good enough for me. So I went to a company in California, it's called Wilderness Electronics, and said, can you make me a, a trigger uh, that will drive? I had a, a Nikon magazine with a motor drive, 400-shot magazine, and uh, it'll work on that. And they said, yeah, and they put that together, and we put it out there. Of course, we never put it out in the rain, but we got pictures. And it was just phenomenal. And then we started working. The first, believe me, you're not going to believe this. 
but the the reaction we got to the trail camera initially was what's that good for and the first two companies we worked with went bankrupt because nobody <laughs> wow. buying. wow and then and then later on we uh we learned how to break into uh sony video cameras and uh take control of the camera and we produced the first video trail camera and then of course when chips came along and all that you know that's history now so but we still had those original cameras from from those early days that's really yeah, cool but that the, is very but cool. you know what but the neatest thing about it is i never made a penny out of any of it <laughs> <laughs> well but that's uh... fine I, right. I'm, I'm glad because if you if you had you may not have continued your research and uh that's right right about that well dr Kroll, it's been a lot of fun talking to you today and i really feel like you've distilled a lot of the information that's that's rolling around in my head and kind of given me uh some clarity going into this this fall and and into next spring as well if folks want to continue to follow along with you your research uh, or also North American Whitetail TV, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, there's several ways. Uh, first of all, the face, my Facebook page, Dr. Deer Facebook page, uh, they can go to that. Uh, com is the website. We've got a huge bank of information that's searchable. For We've got thousands of uh, publications and videos in there that people can look at. And, of course, uh, working with Wildtree, uh, wildtree.co, not com, but .co, wildtree.co has got a wonderful site on it with a lot of information there. And between those three er- uh, three sites, I think folks can uh, can find a lot of what they're looking for. Like I said, it's it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. All right, likewise, anytime, guys. All right, folks, we're going to be right back. Y'all take a minute and check out some of our sponsors. Farm Credit of Northwest Florida. Farm Credit of Northwest Florida has over a century of experience providing financing for people who live, work, or play in the country. Farm Credit is here to help you make your dream of country living a reality. Their unique cooperative structure allows them to return some of their profits back to their borrowers. This patronage distribution effectively lowers a borrower's rate. To get started with your first or next land purchase, give them a call at 855-GO-RURAL or visit them at www.gorural.net. Man, this is one of my favorite food plot podcasts that we have done. I feel like Dr. Kroll did a really good job of, I mean, I guess if you do something for 40 or 50 years, you kind of figure out how to simplify it. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, that's, it, it does seem like the more you get into something at first, the more complicated it gets. For and sure. The longer you stay with it, the more simple it gets. Yeah. You start picking out the pearls of wisdom and figuring out what, what actually matters and things like that. I'm sitting here doing the math in my head on that 3% of your property being in food plots. Where do you think you are right now? Man, I I, I think I've kind of overkilled it a little bit. I'm at about 5%. And the good thing about that is, is it's real easy to not plant, you know? So I'm kind of thinking about turkeys too. And I do want those big open areas. Yeah, those buffer zones. Those buffer zones. And so it's easy to just, you know, either put some more long leaves down the the edge of one of those fields and make that field a little bit smaller, but it, it's also easy to just or you not, can put your not chestnuts, plant it and leave it. Put your chestnuts back there in an orchard. Yeah. Or just let those native grasses come up in those areas, you know? So, but yeah, I, I kind of feel better. I felt, I felt like I didn't have enough food plots. I'm finding out I do. Uh, so that was, that was a good pearl. Yeah. yeah, for sure, man. I feel like we're right on track. 
for about that about that three percent. Uh, so that makes me feel good as well. Um, gets me fired up. Gets me fired up to get back out there and get on the tractor. Yeah, I love talking about the site selection side of it too. Me too. Uh, because uh, you and I both spent some time staring at a map. We've talked about placement and really have thought about we felt like we had thought about everything and you'd look at me sometimes and be like man you are way overthinking this and, <laughs> <laughs> but i mean yeah maybe not you know maybe maybe we distilled some information there in our own minds and got it down to but i did see there was a couple things we were talking about where i'm saying you know i could have done a little bit better in terms of planning but looking at that soil map's a huge part of that you know what I, you know when you talk to biologists and you talk to land managers and you talk to uh, land sales professionals, it's interesting how certain things all start to align. And one of the things that I've learned over the years is it's pretty consistent, no matter who you're talking to when you're dealing with land is that it just depends. It depends on the right. land. It depends on the site. Soil. That was a very interesting thing to hear Dr. Kroll say is that, you know, he's basing how he plants and what seeds he chooses on the site, on the food plot site. And that might be different you know, just, just 400 yards away. Just on your same place. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. So well, like we were just talking about a little bit off air, maybe that's the reason that, you know, some things grow way better in the back 80 and some things don't grow over here. And then, you know, this one gets eaten up a lot quicker. Um, well, and, and it it's also to do with that, that corridor, you know, he likes to plant his, there's a lot to it, man. He likes to plant his uh, food plots on the corridors and closer to creeks and drainages and things like that. You and I are lucky enough now that we're getting to hunt the same property and, and really get to know that property. Uh, but these aren't huge properties that we're hunting. We both also grew up hunting big tracts of timberland, you know, right. where, gosh, you know, you're thousands and thousands of acres. And it was funny. It would be funny to me how year after year after year, certain food plots were the ones that produced. It was like, yep. man, somebody kills a big buck on that food plot every single year. Yep. And you, you just never knew exactly why, or I didn't at least. Yeah. Seems to be more to it than just a little bit of luck. I bet if you or a went favorite back field. and <laughs> analyzed where that plot is and looked at the soils and looked at the site location, you know, where it is in relation to these corridors and drainages and, you know, how the, the prevailing winds set up with the prevailing, with where the, the blind is and the stands are, I bet you'd find that everything that Dr. Kroll described would be true for those areas. And that's why they produce consistently. Well, along those same tokens, it makes me a little bit upset that I could have 20, 22 years of performance records of planting if I would have had that gumption, you know, a long time ago. I mean, we could have had, you know, we planted on this date. We planted on this date in, in October. We planted on this date in November. That was too early. This was too late. We planted this. That didn't work. I mean, you'd have it figured out by now. I tell you what, though, in that in that same token, it's making me feel better about maybe going fishing on Labor Day because That's right. <laughs> every year, you know, yeah. Labor Day rolls around. We're like, ah, got to get to hunt camp. It's Just like a excited tradition. to get it done. Yeah. You're excited to get up there. And it feels like that time of, man, it's hot and the, it's still summertime. Yeah. And every it's usually year. usually pretty dry. Usually pretty yeah, dry in October, man, it seems like. Every year, October is so dry, it, you know, where yeah. you and I are. And this might be the same scenario may play out for folks north of us. Sure. That, but it may be different dates they're talking about. But Man, you know, I'm really going to be paying attention now to, uh, like you said, keeping track of when I'm planting and when I'm having success. You and I had to replant my food plots this year because I got got excited, planted too early, had a big drought, super long drought. And then, you know, we replanted and everything was fine, but yep. that was a waste of money. 
So yeah, tons of great information. A really fun talking to Dr. Deer. Yep, definitely enjoyed that one. Well, that's going to wrap it up for us this week. Appreciate you joining us. We want to make it easy for you to listen. So here's a handy option for you. To get the podcast emailed to you each week, just text the word hunting to 773-770-4377. Again, just text the word hunting to 773-770-4377. You'll join our email list. And wherever you are listening to podcasts, go ahead, subscribe, rate, and review. Send us a written review. We'd love to hear from you. If you got a show topic that you are interested in and like to see us cover, just email us at pros at landhunting.com. That's going to do it for us. Y'all stay safe out there. We'll talk to you next time. This week's show is brought to you by Great Days Outdoors, the South's finest hunting and fishing magazine. Pick up your copy wherever magazines are sold or check them out at greatdaysoutdoors.com. And also by the Hunter's Bait Lowdown Trail Cam Reviewer. The Lowdown High Speed Trail Cam Viewer has flipping fast technology that allows you to view images three times faster on a screen that is 60% bigger than typical 7-inch viewers. Find out more at lowdownviewer.com. And also, Farm Credit of Northwest Florida. Farm Credit of Northwest Florida has over a century of experience providing financing for people who live, work, or play in the country. To get started with your first or next land purchase, give them a call at 855-GO-RURAL or visit them at www.gorural.net. And also brought to you by Alabama Farmers Co-op. Alabama Farmers Cooperative has been serving gardeners, farmers, and everyone in between for 85 years. Visit www.alafarm.com for more information and to find a co-op near you.